It's been nearly six months since the IRS issued its second tranche of regulatory guidance on qualified opportunity funds. How are business opportunity zone funds proceeding? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And on the show with me today is managing partner of the Pearl Fund, Brian Phillips. The Pearl Fund was one of the first Opportunity Zone funds that focused exclusively on business using a venture capital model. Brian joins us from his office in New York City. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. Good. I'm looking forward to speaking with you, too. I know I've uh, tried to get you on uh, for a few months here. I think the, I think the regs, uh, the delay in getting the regs out from Treasury kind of delayed you being able to launch your fund and, and, and talking to me about it. But now you've got a little bit of experience under your belt with, with getting this fund launched. So looking forward to our conversation today. Uh, let's talk about your fund because it's, it's a unique fund. It's not a pure vanilla real estate play like a lot of these first you know, few dozen or hundred or so OZ funds are. Uh, your fund has a venture capital angle to it. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and, and what specifically makes your Opportunity Zone fund unique? Yeah, so so the regulations clearly said in October when they first came out, the proposed regulations, you could do real estate or you could do business. And when I saw that, I, I, I just realized immediately the great potential that's there. And we focus exclusively on early stage, small businesses that have high potential at the Pearl Fund and um, not real estate. And there's probably, depending on whose list you look at today, you know, maybe 200 funds that are out there. And there's just one or two of us at this point. But we hope there'll be many more in the future that focus on business. Yeah, I think there's a, a, a second wave of investment coming that I, that I hope uh, does focus a lot more on yes, business. Talk, I agree. talk to me about, talk to me more about the process uh, that you had to go through in getting this fund launched because it, you you had the idea for this fund well before the the April 2019 regs came out that clarified a lot of these business issues. What what, what was that like? You know, waiting for those regs to come out. Talk to us about the the delay that you encountered, just kind of waiting on the IRS because the the initial set of regulations cleared up a lot of issues for real estate. And so a lot of real estate funds got going and that was pretty simple for them. But, you know, being a business fund like the Pearl Fund is, I would imagine that you, you had to kind of tap the brakes a little bit. Tell, tell us what that was like and maybe take us through that history of, of playing that waiting game. Yeah, sure. So, so the regs proposed first ones came out in October and by Thanksgiving, a couple of weeks later, we opened the Pearl Fund and uh, found counsel you know, that said they knew what they were doing. And, and we put together some set of investment documents uh, and tried to rush in so we could take some capital in by the end of the year and decided wisely to to have those documents analyzed by somebody. And I chose Novogratic 
because they seem to be, you know, one of the leaders in Oz and tax in it. And they looked at it and they, they called me and said, do not open the fund. Um, these docs are not sufficient. It's complex and there's a lot of rules with business investing. And we basically had to throw those away, search for other legal counsel and completely start over. And so I wouldn't wish that on anyone else, but it's really important to get it right and get it done correctly. Um, and being the first, there's a lot of people we hope that will follow. And so we had to spend quite a bit of time really figuring out how to do that. And, and we, we found two big firms, Novogratic advised us as well as uh, Postinelli, who had admitted they had not done, they had done real estate deals, but never done a multi-asset venture model. And uh, each picked a partner and the three of us learned, you know, over the over the winter and spring, how to put one together and, and come out. And we then decided the April regs were, were shortly coming. So we decided to just hold off, see what those were. And then we opened shortly after that. Well, that's good. That's good. Uh, yeah. You know, you definitely have a first mover advantage, but uh, I suppose there's some disadvantage, some disadvantages <laughs> to being a trailblazer. It could be a bumpy road getting this thing yeah. off the ground. But yeah. uh, now, now that you've kind of blazed that trail, hopefully a lot of others do follow after you. Brian, I want to talk about you personally for a minute here. Could you give us some of your personal background? T tell us the story of how you got to where you are today and why did you get involved in Opportunity Zone Investing? Yeah, great question. Um, my background is a serial technology entrepreneur uh, over my career, been in the early team, uh, founding team of two companies that went public. Uh, two were acquired by public companies and one uh, I sold through a management buyout. Uh, with a lot of international experience in building those companies. So when that was done, uh, I, I said, I need to really give back. And, and particularly in the developing world, I felt a real calling for that. And I said, you know, I could go to Peace Corps and dig ditches like anyone else, but what I'm really good at is starting companies. There must be some nonprofit organizations that are involved in entrepreneurship in emerging markets around the country, around the world. And there are several. Uh, one is called Endeavor Global. So I advised and consulted with them for a little while. And then another called TechnoServe and did worldwide entrepreneurship uh, for that organization. And then Goldman Sachs asked me to come help them with their famous 10,000 Women Project. Um, and what's interesting about that project is it's based on a research that Goldman did that the number one way to impact an emerging economy is through SME entrepreneurs, not micro entrepreneurs, but SME entrepreneurs. And, um, and the best of the best are women SME entrepreneurs in emerging markets. So they put me on a plane and I traveled all through Africa, India, China, Latin America, meeting SME entrepreneurs in their 10,000 women program. And I saw firsthand the impact that growing SME entrepreneurs has in a developing economy. So when the Opportunity Zone law passed and I saw that you could do business and it's investing in low income census tracts and my background of being a serial tech entrepreneur, I said, wow, I have seen this work. I know how it works. I should do this. Um, and that's how it all came about. Good, Brian. Well, that's that's good to get some of that insight from you on SME entrepreneurs, uh, particularly women SME entrepreneurs. That's that's interesting. I, I, I want to shift our gears now, uh, talk about startup investing, what, what you're doing with your fund. I, I've said many times on this podcast that I, I believe startup investing may be the best use case for Opportunity Zone investing. I assume you believe that to be the case as well, but, but why is that? Maybe you can expound on that a little bit. Yeah, I certainly agree with you. I think that um, with business investing, um, you can have greater returns, and that's greater financial returns and greater impact return on the investment in terms of the impact that you have on the community. Because when you think about real estate, 
you know, real estate deals are, are good deals that they're putting together. Um, you might get a 2x return, uh, have a big home run, you get a three or uh, very unusual a 4x. With startup investing, uh, particularly what we're looking at, we're looking at a minimum of a 10x return for these companies. And many have the potential to be, you know, much greater than that 50 to 100x. So it has the potential for much, much greater returns than you can ever get financially with real estate, but also an impact because in construction, you have a lot of good jobs that happen, but many of them are temporary jobs. And once the buildings are done and built and the property's done, you may have a few jobs in terms of maintenance and, and whatnot, but that's it. What we do is we look for small companies that are two or three people that in a year, they should be 30 to 50. And in two or three years, the ones that make it are two to 300, maybe 500 people. Those are long-term well-paying jobs that are definitely going to have a much more significant return in terms of impact in those opportunity zones. And from an investor's perspective, the, the big incentive for opportunity zone investing is that last one, the exclusion of capital gains liability on the back end within the opportunity zone investment. The deferral of the original capital gain is nice. The reduction in your capital gains liability by 10 or 15%, depending on your holding period is nice. But the the, the big one is the exclusion on the back end and and that's that's where you want those big returns. If you if you have, you know, a 1.5x or a 2x return on a real estate investment, that's great. Uh, but uh, you know, you, and, and you're saving a little bit on taxes. But imagine the the capital gains tax savings you would have on a on an investment that goes 10x or even 100x in a in a yep. in a business model. Obviously, it's it's riskier. Uh, your your real estate investment is not likely to go to zero, but a business investment could. Point. And I tell I tell investors, look, you want to diversify between both. It's not do one or the other. So with real estate opportunity zone investing, you know, you can you have a capital asset, you have a land, you have building, you have something there, and it's safe and it's secure, but it's a lower return. Put put some money there and put some money, save some money for an opportunity zone venture business fund that has much, much higher potential and uh, has much higher return, but is higher risk. And just spread it, depending on your risk profile, a percentage in one and a percentage in the other. But it's not all one or the other. It makes a good sense to balance your, your investing portfolio between the two. Absolutely. I think that's that's wise advice. We, we touched upon this briefly uh, a few minutes ago, how your fund and others like yours are kind of blazing the trail for startup or or for operating business investment within opportunity zones uh aside from just plain vanilla real estate deals that that seemed to be the the first wave that was getting done i kind of look at this as the second wave C can you talk about that a little more talk about the oz business movement that you foresee coming what's that going to look like and and may maybe you can share some anecdotes of what you've seen so far yeah that's that's a great question i we wrote an article uh, late in the spring talking about the three what investors need to know about the three waves of opportunity zone investing uh, it's on Forbes and um, we feel like first wave was real estate because it was much easier to do as we already talked about the regulations were clear and simple for real estate investing and it took a while to figure it out with business investing so they had a head start but it's also not that different than what they've been doing with enterprise zones and empowerment zones and these sorts of things. But business investing is different. So I feel like the second wave is business investing that's just getting started due to the later tranche of regulations and more of us are getting up and going. And the third wave will be focusing on real estate and business working together because they really need to. As real estate expands, they need 
tenants that are going to pay that rent and opportunity zone businesses that grow and expand from three to 50 to 300 are going to need good space to occupy that are still in the zone. So they'll be pretty much tied in together. So what we're seeing right now is a lot of real estate, a lot of articles about it, but we're just starting to see the infancy of business investing with, with opportunity zones. And being the first, we have the fortunate position of a lot of people calling us and saying, I want to do what you're doing. I want to have a business fund of myself. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I live near an opportunity zone. And so what we've committed to do at the Pearl Fund is in addition to running our own fund here in the northeast part of the U.S., is help anyone who wants to build an Opportunity Zone business fund as much as possible to save the work and the time that we had to go through. And everything from best practices to co-investing in each other's funds to even co-running funds together that are focused on business opportunities in their geography. And we find it to be very geography-centric. Somebody wants to invest in Opportunity Zone businesses and Opportunity Zones near where they live um, and, and doing it way across the country in different locations doesn't seem to be happening near as much um, people it's local based investing wanting to have that impact and those sorts of returns in their own neighborhoods well i think that those are the types of funds that that may have the best success because they're able to have boots on the ground in those local communities and and engage with with the local community leaders and and other actors and the residents there i i i i, I like those those smaller funds that have boots on the ground. Maybe that's just me. Um, no, I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, it's funny, the definition of a micro VC fund is a fund under $100 million. So uh, I see with real estate, you know, the really big guys have moved in, the big funds. But what we don't see on business is the big venture capital funds moving in. If anything, a lot of venture capital is getting bigger and bigger and doing later stage investments. And they're sort of betting on the proven winners and raising enormous funds, which means they need to put a lot of capital to work. And uh, this is scrappy, is what I like to say. So these are all within the community, spending time in the community, spending time with these entrepreneurs, early stage, helping them succeed, putting much smaller parts of capital into these and making sure it's successful and maybe reinvesting again and continuing. And that's not really something that the big VC funds are doing. So I think you're right. It's going to actually be a movement of people like us and people that we've been talking to who are serial successful entrepreneurs who really want to have an impact and have a return and put a fund together in their area. And it'll be a large movement of many of these smaller funds putting together in their local areas, as opposed to really big players coming in and, and investing big chunks of money. Right, right. Let's, uh, let's focus more on your fund, the Pearl Fund. Could, could you tell us what specifically is the Pearl Fund doing? Where are you investing? What types of businesses are you incubating? Yeah, good good question. We are we are focused uh, two locations uh near where I live. Um and that is in New York City and in the Scranton area. So we've officed have offices in both locations and we're focusing on early stage high potential businesses, usually the first set of capital into those companies. Um so what's interesting is we're working in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. Uh, which is an opportunity zone right outside New York City in Brooklyn that's being completely rehabbed, uh, where they used to build World War II battleships and whatnot. And, and is a surging economy with 400 companies uh, there now, and it's supposed to triple in a couple of years. So it's really a good test case for lots of good deal flow, lots of early stage startups that are all already in opportunity zones. In the Scranton area, um, there's three different opportunity zones with 
local incubators and office space available with companies already in them. So we're balancing and trying to build best practices between two extremes, almost one in the middle of the country and one in outside a thriving city being New York City to really get best lessons and, and practices on how do both of these work and how do we have a successful fund that invests in these sorts of businesses. So um, we are right now in the middle of doing due diligence on a couple of companies and looking at doing our first set of investments um, before the end of the calendar year. And what types of businesses are these tech startups or are they um, manufacturing or what, what are we what are we looking at here exactly? Yeah, so so we are focusing a lot on tech, but there's some outliers out there. So the first thing we say is is it's important that we understand the business. We think it has that ten plus 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 x potential. Um, we like the founding team. We understand the business and something that when we come in and work with them, we know what we're doing. Uh, we've been involved in the space. Our network uh, over thirty years of investors and consultants and advisors are a good network that will help this company. So if it's something we don't really know or understand or our network isn't really suited for, it doesn't really make sense. It may be a great business and has potential, but it's really not, not the right one for us that we really feel like we can have impact to make these businesses succeed. Right. So you're focusing on on business types that kind of fall in your wheelhouse of understanding. I think that's, I think that's smart. Uh, if you don't mind, I want to talk numbers with you for a minute. I want to know uh, what's what's the target size of your fund? How much money have you raised so far? What have you deployed so far? And, and how many how many businesses would you like to be in your portfolio uh, when, by the time the fund closes? Yeah, so so with an opportunity zone multi asset business fund, um, it's an interesting question because even though you have a fund size. Uh, that you say, this is our fund size. It's not really too relevant. What's important is you. we raise money in tranches. And those tranches are sizes of a subset of what you say your fund size is, that you know that you can put that money to work within the deadlines that the Oz regulations give you. So a typical fund uh, that's a venture fund will have a certain number, they get commitments for that number, and then they pull down capital draws on that amount as they invest over a couple of years. You can't really do that with an Oz fund. So to answer your question, we have um, we announced that our fund was $25 million, but we didn't get going until almost June. So we've said this year, we're going to have a $10 million fund, and we're raising it in, in a couple of tranches. Uh, that we are sure we can put to work at each time. So we're still on our first tranche and we're about 50% there. It gives us the ability to probably make two investments um, for sure by this end of the year and then some in the spring. So so it kind of, you have to do it in chunk by chunk. And there's an advantage in Opportunity Zone business funds to to actually do a new fund every year. Uh, so we'll sort of see what happens at the end of the calendar year and just open a second fund. That way you keep all of your investors in the same 10-year tranche for exits, which is very, very important because otherwise uh, you have to wait till the last person in the fund reaches their 10-year mark. So if you have a fund open for three three years, uh, first person who puts money in has to wait 13 years before they can get that tax advantage. So we think it's advantageous for business funds to open one every calendar year is better so that you keep them uh, in those tranches. So it's doing sub tranches and one per particular year is really important. Gotcha. That, that that makes a lot of sense. So so each each fund uh, would be a multi asset fund, but but may not invest in twenty five or thirty businesses that would take years to identify. Maybe just maybe just two or three, if if I'm understanding you correctly. And and then you know basically that allows all the investors to exit at the same time after after ten years. Is that right? 
Yeah, yeah, but we want we like to do more than two or three. So you may do smaller investments than you intended because it's nice to have a diversification on a number of investments that you've got as well. So it's sort of balancing a number of things that you've got to do to make sure you really run a good fund. Um, and it sort of depends on how much capital is in, how many good deals you have. But one of the things we're doing is is building this network of all the other business funds so that there's an opportunity for us to know about each other's deals and even be able to deploy capital in a co-investing scheme in another fund somewhere else that makes makes the sense on makes sense for investing. So so part of it is as we build all these funds, you know, one fund and another can can collaborate on certain deals that are real winners that are out of their portfolio and and co-invest in them as well. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and I, I suppose that that only helps you with being able to get that capital turned around within the the 180 day timeline that that you're that you're working under. Is that right? Yeah, you 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 don't want to get in a situation where you've got the capital in and you've got a deadline from Oz. Um, for people that don't know, you have to have 90% of it deployed uh, about every six to maximum 12 months on 1231 and 630. So, so if you get to that deadline, what you don't want to do is have too much capital and pay penalties. But you also even worse is say, oh my gosh, I'm going to put this in invest- investment that's not a good investment. So by having a whole network of opportunities on business funds and other people have vetted those deals and have winners and we can talk to each other, uh, it gives a great opportunity to diversify our funds as well as prevent that risk from from happening. Yeah, if you don't mind me asking, who are some of the other um, players in this space that that you have some of those uh, partnerships with, those, those those relationships with, some other some other types of uh, funds like yours? Yeah, so I, I just finished a roadshow um, and drove around the country five thousand miles, and I, I went from New York to to New Orleans and then Houston. Uh, and then up to Austin and uh, then out to Colorado um, and Denver and then uh, over to D.C. and Baltimore. So all of those cities uh, are people I've met with uh, who are in the process of forming a fund at this point. We should have an announcement probably October, no, probably October, November of three or four of them opening. And there's probably another dozen that we're in discussions with around the country. So. So they're they're all over, uh, but they haven't yet opened, and they're they're in the process of of doing the legal docs and and building the the portals and and whatnot at this point. So we'll tell you soon. Good. Well, we'll be on the lookout for those announcements, uh, and and you're you're helping them, right? You're you're providing some some resources and some support to getting those funds up and up and running. I I, I believe you mentioned uh, previously. Is that correct? Yeah. So, so, you know, we're, we're encouraging anybody. We're happy to talk to them who's doing a fund and help them out. But some in these particular cases, we're actually going to co-run the fund together. So these will be like a family of pearl funds, but each one is in a different geography and is run by a different general partner, managing partner, and oftentimes is focused in what their background and experience is in terms of the industry that they want to invest in. So everyone is completely different. It's actually quite exciting to see all the different opportunities on business funds, all the different areas that's being applied, not only geography-wise, but also in a particular vertical that they're focusing on. My background being tech, many of these are not tech funds. They'll be focused on on other industries. Gotcha. Right. That make, that makes sense. Uh we talked a little bit about the the regs, uh, how that delay. I don't know if it was a delay, really, but it was a it was a lengthy period of time that you had to wait before you were able to get your fund going, really. But now we have the regs in place, and I think you've got a pretty good sense of how to operate. And you've you've launched your fund in June, so you you definitely have enough to go on now. So so, what challenges now are you seeing the opportunity zone incentive posing for venture capital investing? 
Yeah, so I think that um, one is certainly the big players aren't moving in, like we already talked about. So you don't have the big funds with the experience you're moving in. It's, it's a lot harder work. Um, and you just can't show up at a board meeting once a quarter. You know, there's a lot of hands-on in getting these companies up and going, for one. Two is um, the process of managing a fund is more complex. As we talked about, you have, I like to describe it as three clocks. You have the clock you've got to manage of your investors. So they have capital gains. By the time that happens, they have 180 days to have to invest it in a qualified opportunity zone fund. If they don't make that deadline, then, then they don't get to take advantage of the program. So if your fund isn't open and ready to take capital at that particular point, you will miss them. The fund has challenges that 90% of that capital then has to be deployed in qualified opportunity zone businesses You know, by, by December 31st or June 30th of each year. You have six to 12 months to deploy it. So you've got to be looking at deploying a capital. And then the companies themselves, the businesses, they have the most flexibility. Uh, the April regs gave also them like real estate 31 months to be able to deploy the capital that's invested in them as long as there's a written plan about how that capital is going to be used. So as a fund manager in a business fund, you've got the challenges of, of managing all of those people's clocks and doing all of those things simultaneously. Um, and uh, that's, that's a little different than what's ever been out there before. It's doable. And I encourage people to, to not be afraid of that. We figured it out. It's possible. And we encourage others to, to, to put one together and, and get after it. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, there, there's some tricks and some hoops to jump through for, for business investing in, in OZs, but it's, it's definitely doable. Uh, one question I have for you is, what if you have the problem of too much success too early on? What if, what if you have a startup that takes off and, and decides that it, it exits after year five or six and you aren't able to get to that 10-year holding period? What, what do you do? Yeah, that's probably the most common question people have with investing in businesses. Opportunity zone investing in real estate, the building is not going to move out. But with businesses, you have that potential. So there's a couple of things. One is um, you have a number of investments. If something like that happens, um, we can't control it because we don't have a controlling stake oftentimes in these companies. Um, and if it happens, it's it's a good thing. It means you've got an early winner and the return uh, is going to be a really good return because they got an offer they just can't refuse. And so that's good news and bad news. And I tell every investor, I say, when you come in, it's a potential thing that might happen. I'll call you and say, I have good news and bad news. You know, the, the good news is, you know, you've got a really great return in a couple of years on one of the companies. All the others continue on the program. Uh, but this one goes out, you'll get a distribution, and now it's a taxable event. They have the opportunity to roll it into another opportunity zone fund if they want at that particular point and start the process over. But the way the regs read today, their 10-year clock restarts. And so we hope that will change. There are some efforts to change that, that long as you roll it, it shouldn't restart. But at this particular point, for limited partners in a fund, they'll get the distribution and then they can decide what they want to do with it. But there's another tax law, the small business stock law, the 1202 law, that if the company happens to be a C-Corp and you've held it for five years or more, uh, you can get up to 10x of your return tax-free. So we use that as a backstop for companies that are going and hope that many of these are early stage. They'll make it at least to the five-year period. And if that's the case, then up to 10x of their return is tax-free and the balance they'll pay long-term capital gains on. 
Gotcha. So, so, so kind of the same incentive really, but, but after only five years. So that's, that's good to keep in mind. And I guess if the company exits before that five-year mark, in a way, it's a good problem to have, right? I mean, yes, you will pay capital gains, but, but the return should be pretty incredible if they're, if they're exiting that soon, I, w- I would imagine. So that, 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 that's good. That, that was a, that was a, that's a question that I'm sure a lot of people have. Uh, and I'm, thanks for, thanks for your insight there. It's, it's a good way to deliver bad news. <laughs> Absolutely. You want to, you want to start with the bad news, right? Say, well, we didn't, we didn't, we haven't reached the, uh, the holding period for your incentive. The good news is I'm going to cut you a really big check. Yes. Yeah. And that's, that's a good way to do it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, what, uh, what economic and social impact does a fund like yours, the Pearl Fund or, or other VC OZ funds, what types of economic and social impact do those funds have on the local communities where you're investing? Yeah. So, so we mentioned earlier on that, that, each of these funds, my fund and others, are being run by people who live in the area uh, that the fund is being generated and going to invest. So, so one is they know the community, they work with the community, they know their target investment, um, and, and that's a good thing. But the second biggest thing certainly is all focused on job creation. So we are focused on you know, high potential, fast-growing companies, as we mentioned. So there's going to be a lot of employment that happens from that. From obviously, it's best and easiest to get people who are local, um, but there also be people who don't don't have that skill set will be brought in. So that's bringing in people who are working every day in that community, and they're going to have needs of where are they going to eat, where are they going to shop, where are they going to get their car fixed, where you know. So it also has potential that that um, income that these people have and working every day in these uh, opportunity zones is going to also spur the economy that happens. And back to the beginning of the podcast, we talked about the Goldman Sachs study about how to have economic impact, and it's growing SME entrepreneurs. When these companies grow, you see the real impact on the economy where they're growing. And I think that's exactly the same sort of thing we're going to see with fast-growing companies you know, in opportunity zones. Good. So, Brian, one, one thing I want to talk to you about was that and, and I've asked a few of my recent guests about this, the, that New York Times article that came out uh, the end of August. Uh, it's not every day that, that, the, that the nation's biggest newspaper writes a front page story above the fold on Opportunity Zone. So I know that created quite the stir in our industry here. What, what was your response to that article? What did, what did you take away from it? Yeah, it's it's. I talked to the reporter. Uh, he interviewed me, and I gave him a couple of good um, opportunity zone business prospects and investors in there. And and he chose, or they chose, not to to record them. So we wrote a post, a letter to the article, and a post on Medium that you know addresses that issue. That we actually think that the article was spot on. There was nothing untrue about it, but it was only one side of the story. And part of that is because. That's what they do, and they they discover these sorts of things and and want to talk about them, and that's 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 good reporting. But the point is, is there's a whole other side which we've talked about in this interview is, you know, the business investing and the great impact it's going to have in the communities. A lot of good people who are doing really good things. It's just also a bit later, um, and I think when we look in three months and six months and a year from now, we're going to see a lot more of this kind of high impact, high return investing in businesses, and I hope that they decide then to write about that side of the story. Yeah, I hope you're right. And I, I agree with you. I thought the, 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 there wasn't anything inaccurate about the article, but, uh, but they did only focus on one side. And, 
you know, to use somebody else's analogy, I can't remember who came up with this. It may have been John Lettieri at EIG. I, I, th- I think he's referred to this as this is the top of the first inning for the opportunity zone incentive still. And it's a little bit too early to, to, you know, render a verdict on it. So, but and I'm, I'm hopeful that over the next several months and, and years to come, I mean, this, this incentive is still a, around for, for several years that we'll see a lot more impactful investing going forward. Yeah, I think he used the word waves, which we were happy about, and back to our previous conversation, that it's just the first wave. Um, and, and you know, real estate is cherry-picking opportunities. They're doing, you know, the best return they can, but many of those have already been picked through at this particular point, and now the real work is beginning to really do things right. So so I think that uh, back to our waves conversation, this this is just part of the first wave. Yep, I, I, I agree. Well, Brian, thanks for taking the time today. I think uh, we're getting toward the end of our conversation here. This is this has been great, though. I, I appreciate the insight that you provided on uh, VC. You know, dropping that VC model into the OZ investing world—it's a unique angle that that you've taken on for sure. But before we go, uh, can you tell us where can our listeners go to learn more about you and the Pearl Fund? Yeah, so we're you know certainly have a website. It's thepearl.fund. Uh, And you can see us on Twitter. Just search for the Pearl Fund at the Pearl Fund on Twitter, where we kind of keep a lot of our updates and and things up and going there. So those are probably the best two places to find out and learn more. Great. Well, thank you for that. And for our listeners out there, I will have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast, and you'll find links to all of the resources that Brian and I discussed on today's show. I'll have a link to the Goldman Sachs study that Brian referenced earlier, as well as his Forbes article on the three waves of Opportunity Zone investing. And of course, I'll link to the Pearl.fund. That's the Pearl Fund website and their Twitter account as well. Brian, thanks for joining us today. This has been great. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. 